Hey, made to here. I've been thinking a lot about the promises we make to the next generation. There's this idea that we're building and growing and exploring and saving so generations to come can have and know more than we do now. But these days, I feel discouraged by our dwindling investment in future generations, all while we still project our expectations and demands onto them instead of supporting them on their own terms. I've been feeling especially grateful for people dedicating their lives to those still coming of age, those who help kids and families discover joy and define success for themselves. I decided to sit down with two of my favorite women, Kirsten Birch and Ellie Rocher, because I admire how they show up for future generations, both in their parenting and in their professional lives. Kirsten is the executive director at Zoom House, a nonprofit in South Minneapolis that supports families in their transition from homelessness to affordable housing. Since Zoom is 22 apartment units, they strive to do small well, inviting residents to define success for themselves. Then Zoom customizes resources and support to help them achieve their own goals while building resilience, dignity, and community. Kirsten is at the heart of this work, all while raising three brilliant and beautiful kids of her own. Ellie is an author and educator. Her most recent book is called Play Like a Girl, the inspiring story of how a free secondary soccer school is succeeding in a Kenyan slum. She empowers young people with tools for storytelling and leadership in a variety of settings here and abroad. The high schoolers at Bethlehem Lutheran Church Twin Cities know Ellie as a staff member, a mentor, a trusted adult who challenges them to build empathy for the wider world. I love the way Ellie talks about incarnate and human bodies, especially in relationship to her two young sons. I know that Kirsten and Ellie come from strong, close-knit families who nurtured their safety, their dreams, and their independence. So our conversation began there. Here's Kirsten talking about her matriarchs, her family's tradition of beautiful, strong women. My grandmother lived through integration. My grandmother, her mother, you know, was fleeing the South. And my grandmother was fleeing the South. And so they came here in a time where they were just trying to make it. Then she had children. And my mom grew up and she was really aware of what the separation with, of race was like for her. And so they always had this mentality like, work twice as hard, you know, do the right thing, make a name for yourself, be a good, I always say like, be a good black person. That's kind of how my mother grew up and that influenced her parenting. That in, what she taught us was, you do have to work harder you have to be careful about what you say and what you do because you're being judged in a different way. You have to be quiet. You can't challenge anything. And she wanted us to be successful, but she wanted us to do it quietly. And so then here I come. <laughs> and I'm seeing such a shift in our culture where um, this, this conversation um, is a part of kind of our everyday life again. And my kids are experiencing the effects of racism and I'm not a quiet person. And so I'm constantly struggling with kind of trying to honor my mother and my grandmother mother and saying, like, I will, I will do well, I will, I will 
work hard and take care of my family, but I can't shut up. <laughs> and, and, then, and then give my children what they need and tell them that you don't have to be quiet. You can speak up. You can challenge the status quo. And you can say this is wrong and we're going to do something about it. And so I think it's a, there's always like a constant struggle inside with my parenting. It's like going this path to, you know, to honor the generations ahead of me and then making a promise to myself and to my children to say, I don't want you to ever feel that. I don't want you to ever feel like you can't speak up. Um, and it's a... It's difficult. It's challenging some days, yeah. I think my parents, the two things they wanted me to walk away with was that they were there and that I could do anything I wanted. And um, they made very intentional choices about their career paths so that they would be present for my childhood and their presence was their love. Um, and they told us that they had made that decision. Um, and they also made decisions um, so that we could follow our passions and follow our dreams, and they were openly supportive. I also respected that because I was one of five, they made it abundantly clear as well that these were our dreams, and we were doing it for ourselves and not for them. Um, so they would... Um, they would support us, but that didn't mean they would come to every single gymnastics meet, for example. Uh, and I think that that was a really good um, tension to live in that um, I mattered and I was loved and I could dream, but I was not the center of the universe. And um, I really appreciated that combination of, of promises, if you will. There's an old cliche about parenting, that having children is like watching your own heart walk around outside your body. I know this is true for Kirsten and Ellie. They are fiercely maternal women, and I love watching them parent their children. It's hard work handing over promises to your little ones every day, when you know from personal experience that the world will challenge their truth and value, and you know how hard it is to be yourself and yet you try to hold space for your kids to be who they actually are. I asked Kirsten and Ellie about their call to motherhood, what has been wild and holy about promising to be there for their kids, because I can tell it informs how they show up in the world and their work too. It shapes the way they pour their whole hearts into helping people belong. I mean, they are running with that. It is something that I really spend a lot of time trying to create spaces where they feel like that's okay. And so they definitely are, are very comfortable with talking about what they think is different about them, what makes them valuable, what, what makes them special, and telling people that certain things that you may be judging me for are not right. And so I think that they are, this generation, my kids, my nieces and nephews, are just a lot more vocal and a lot more strong, and they feel supported by us as parents in a way that I know my parents loved and supported me, but they weren't vocal about supporting me and wanting to be an agent of change. Um. I've been working with high schoolers my whole professional life, and now that I have two babies, um, 
I think of that even differently. I don't think that my work has changed, but I think of it differently. Um, I think about the f holding holding your baby and um, that they know in their body when you hold them that they belong to you. <laughs> and um, when they belong to you, they belong to the world. Um, they know right away. Um, I've had this feeling where they knew right away I was their mama and they were my baby. And if nowhere else in the world, they would belong right there. And um, that bodily knowing, that like I lock soul exchange that happens between parents and, and newborns. Um, once we have that feeling, we, we just continue to desperately seek it out for the rest of our lives. And uh, it can't always look like your mom holding you, but um, I see in my high schoolers as they're brave and venturing out away from their families to expand their identity out into the world, that they're, they're still desperate for that sense of belonging, um, that you are loved and you are welcome here. And so I see my work with high schoolers um, being not their parents. It's so fun um, to be able to try to cultivate a space that isn't their home where they can believe without a doubt um, that they belong and that they are loved. And um, because I get to work in a church and not at school, it has nothing to do with grades or attendance. Like you just, you show up and you get it. Um, and that very much comes from what my parents taught me about what love is. And so you think about, it's very exhausting work, right? But, you, and, but I think of it as nonviolent work. Like when those high schoolers and middle schoolers show up for the first time, they're testing you. They're watching how you're going to respond to the first kind of bizarre comment that is made or how you will treat the person who maybe at school gets pushed to the side. And um, so I think of that as that same bodily love where I take all the awkwardness and I take all the eye rolls and I take all the things being projected onto me and I try to absorb it into my body and kick it back as love. Um, and when they watch me do that, then it's clear, okay, this is a safe place. We, we belong. Um, That's like a spiritual Black Panther suit. Absolutely. <laughs> That's exactly how I think of it. Absolutely. You know, and honestly, reading the, the work of the civil rights activists and their nonviolent training, like it, this is a version of that, of like just taking taking all this doubt and hurt and brokenness that high schoolers are going through because they're in this spiritual crisis of what does it mean? What's the purpose? What, who do I love? Who am I becoming? You just take it. And because my family gave me this stability and this love, I have something to stand on that I can just absorb it and, and, and exude it as love. And um, that's just the best work in the world. So, you know, as I'm like, as I'm locking eyes with my little boys, every day and saying this this is where you belong trying to give them that stability I try to I try to give the youth a, a version of that and that came from my parents Ellie speaks about her work as nonviolent resistant to the fear and anxiety the world hands over to each of us while that term might sound passive it is profoundly active to bear witness to the trauma and transition and truth of another person. 
It requires patience and strength to hold this kind of space. Kirsten does this every day at Zoom House. She walks alongside families from homelessness to housing, naming trauma, celebrating milestones, and building resilience one day at a time. There have been so many times where I feel like we are in spaces that we're told we don't belong, um, in spaces where our voices don't matter. And so in my work through Zoom, like I, I took that position and took that space with intention to say, of anyone that comes into this room to speak, like you are the person that belongs here. You are the person that's leading this conversation. You are the person that gets to make the decisions about what's gonna happen. And I am just here to listen. And I'm gonna let you guide and speak and have power and have choice and tell me what's wrong and tell me what you wanna do about it and, and not project onto you what the world already has about who you should be. Um, who you should be, what you should do, how you should do it, um, where you should be in your life. And a lot of really, really intimate relationships with residents. They tell me a lot about um, the trauma that they've experienced this and, and what it's been like kind of walking through the world and not knowing what was next and they've not had the opportunity to have someone sit and tell them, like, things will be okay. You now have an opportunity to make your life what you want it to be. And, like, I show up in that space because that is something that I didn't have. Um, there have been so many times in life that I've experienced, and I know that I hear through stories that other people have just been shut down and told like, no, you're not good enough. You're not going to be able to get this done. And um, it really breaks your confidence in yourself. And I, I struggle with it a lot, and I know other families struggle with it, with wondering if even if they're saying what they're trying to say in a way, you know, I hear a lot of, I don't think I'm making myself clear. I don't know if I'm articulate enough to tell you what I need. I'm like, absolutely. Like, who better to tell me what you need than you? Um, I, and that's, I think that is one of the, the hardest things is that you always feel like I have to show up and it has to be perfect to, for me to get anywhere. And that's just not true. And it's being kind of it being instilled in me that there's no room for failure makes going through things so much more difficult. And when you feel like you have failed, then what's next? We receive all kinds of explicit and implicit messages from the world that trick us into staying silent or thinking what we have to say is too disorganized or unworthy. It's hard to keep handing over these promises about love and value dignity and grace in our work and relationships, especially on the days we struggle to believe them ourselves. Okay, so I'll start when I, I when I was a kid, I was a, like a type A overachieving workaholic type and um, I played the games really, really well. And one thing my parents told me was to do my best and that 
was not the right thing in hindsight to tell me as a child because I was so driven and so serious that um, you never arrive at your best. And so I was the kid who thought a 99% was a failure. Um, and so th that, um, that standard of perfection, I think um, women have a tendency to fall for uh, because we are told, like you said previously, you have to be better than men to be equal. And there's no, you're speaking for all women and um, you can't mess up. Um, and you can't even lose it, right? Because like losing it is seen as being hysterical and being dismissed. Um, and so that led to a lot of being wound very tight, right? And um, having completely unattainable expectations for myself because you never, there's never, the best is never a destination where you can take a breath. Um, so one of the things I try to teach my young people is what good enough looks like <laughs> and how to be savvy in the world and be a renaissance woman who, you know, chooses, like, chooses where she's going to put her power and what she's going to put her time into and, um, and how to be at peace with okay <laughs> or enough, right? I think the way that it started to shape in me is as a kid. I tried to be a perfectionist because when I worked really hard and got really good grades, like I'd be eager to go home and show my parents these grades and they were proud, but they were like, yeah, that's what you're supposed to be doing. Totally. There was never like a, totally, you're doing such a great job. Yes. And so it taught me to, I never was able to just live in the moment and be yes. proud of myself. Yes. And that's something that I try when I'm working with families at Zoom or when I'm talking to my own kids, it's like, you did try hard, and, mm -hmm. and this is the outcome, and this is beautiful, and this is great, mm -hmm. and you did a great job. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just telling people that, yes, it's good enough. Mm -hmm. you, did a, you did what you could do, and you can live in this moment and be happy with the work mm -hmm. that you've done because it, it doesn't have to compare to somebody else. Yeah. And, you know, there's just, for so many reasons, there's just so m many people who it's a victory to just get through the day, mm -hmm. right? Like right now thriving is not an option and there's no, there's not even such thing as like a trying and doing your best. It's just like you just got through the day and it's mm -hmm. so fucking exhausting. <laughs> um, it's so exhausting um, that, the, like what we're asking human beings to do versus what they're up against. So, for example, I'm thinking I was at a book launch last week of Austin Harkey's Transforming. He reminded us that like the trans community, for example, like is not thriving. Maybe they're starting to become out, right? But getting through the day sometimes is plenty. It's scary. And I think mm -hmm. about – I think – I just a Rolodex of youth went through my head of like for so many, for so many, uh, young people, um, who are, who are, don't have stable housing yet. Right. Or are struggling with mental illness, these very real things. We're asking so much of them when literally just surviving through the day and like staying safe is a victory. Right. And so then, um, then the, the work is, helping to offer that stability and that safety so that we can move from 
surviving to thriving that people can dream and even start to ask what they what more do they want than getting through the day and tied to that is we do often have to spend so much time trying to meet those basic needs um, and help people make it through the day and that is an issue in itself is that these are this is the baseline that anyone should be able to know where they're going to sleep at night, where they're yes. going to get their next meal, yes. and how they're going to stay safe. Yes. And the fact that we even have to do that work for anyone in our community is an indication of some bigger problems that we have. Yeah. Um, I talk a lot, I work a lot with my son's school and with my kids' daycare center, and specifically around trying to raise money to keep the access to the quality child care affordable um, for families. and. When it, once they get into school age, you know, access to other opportunities or just feeling supported while they're in school is really important to me. And I say it's really unfair for a child that the quality of education that they are going to get is already predetermined for them mm -hmm. based on their parents' address and their parents' income. Totally. But we always tell this, there's this dominant narrative that education and employment are the ways out. Mm -hmm. That's how you make yourself better. That's mm -hmm. how you strengthen your community. But if I don't even have the same shot at a quality education as my counterpart, like we've got to do some more unpacking. We've got to do some more work. Yes. And those are the types of promises that mm -hmm. have been broken generation yes. after generation because it's not getting better. Right. We're not closing that gap. And when you talked about your clients not feeling like they belong, they're not being heard. And so there's so many well-meaning folks in society who want to address that brokenness but have no idea how because they've never had a meaningful relationship with someone in a so different socioeconomic bracket, for example, mm -hmm. right? So your clients know what they need. They mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. um, but there's so few people listening to that 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 voice isn't affecting policy. So people might not inherently understand the connection between childcare and education and all like how complicated it is mm -hmm. to start to really support some vulnerable folks in our society. Mm -hmm. um, but right, those are that's where I see the broken promises. So when I wrote this last book, Play Like a Girl, it's set in a slum in Kenya. And one of the things that I get excited about is every theme in that book is hyper-relevant to our immediate context in Minneapolis, right? So for, for the slum in Kenya, like, girls are really struggling to even show up at school. So the question is, like, we all know that everyone does better when girls get to go to school. Um, but we have to be asking that same question for Minneapolis of who is receiving an excellent education mm -hmm. and who is not, like every child that's a promise like every child deserves access to an excellent mm -hmm. education not just a chair right, right. but an right. excellent education and that is that's absolutely tied to how their wider community is doing how their parents are doing what their mm -hmm. housing situation is where their meals are coming from what does child care look like right um do they feel safe can they do homework mm -hmm. <laughs> um mm -hmm. and that is that is an entire society needing to step up mm -hmm. and address this very strategically. We have to listen to the people who know their circumstances, who see their challenges, who feel the weight of injustice. So often these are the ones too young to work, to vote, to exercise their purchase power. But just because we're not listening doesn't mean they don't have something to say. 
while we make excuses about the complexities of systems or shout over their needs, they continue to dream and rise. Kirsten's firstborn, Geo, is strong, sensitive, funny, and kind. He's an old soul and gives a lot of adults I know a run for their money when it comes to charm, leadership, and wisdom. Sometimes I forget he's 11, still a child. I ask Kirsten how she makes and keeps promises through her relationship with Geo, and whether the rest of us are keeping that promise of a better future to her son and his generation. You know, Gio and I talk about a lot of stuff. He's 11. He's becoming really aware um, of the world around him and how things are impacting specific groups of people in ways that it's not impacting others. Um, He has, I actually think talking about him is a great way to think about it because he's experienced things that I didn't even have to experience as a kid, um, being called racial slurs, um, most recently being bullied by a group of girls at school about his weight and about his sexual orientation, which is not even a conversation for him right now, but it's assumptions that other people are making about him. And I think about that and I think our children are so broken. Mm -hmm. They're hurting Mm -hmm. from what's happening in the world and they're learning from us Mm -hmm. as their parents and they're interpreting it, and they're, it's manifesting in them, and then they're regurgitating this out into the space that we're all sharing, and people are just really hurt. And I would like to think of school as a safe place. And for my son right now, it is not. It, you know, he's an, he's an honor student who doesn't want to be at school right now. And I think about conversations that I've had um, around the importance about talking about mental health Mm -hmm. and about how trauma impacts us and and how what's happening to him right now will be something that he thinks about Mm -hmm. 10 years from now and he will remember what he felt and he will remember how we made him feel Mm -hmm. when he finally decided to come and talk to us about it. Mm -hmm. And so one thing he said to me recently was, I didn't wanna talk to you guys because I didn't think anybody would do anything about it. And I've told, all of the grown-ups in my life, what's happening, who's doing it, how I'm feeling, and nothing is being done about it. And he said, and I feel like you're telling me I need to fix something. And I didn't do anything but show up where I'm supposed to belong. And I had a conversation with the principal and with some teachers. And, like, these are the this is the brokenness that frustrates me is, you know, it's been a week and other parents haven't even been notified. And I said, we are failing all of these kids involved. You know, I'm obviously fighting for my son, but these other kids need to have some conversations around what they're doing and what's happening in their life because there are probably things that we don't know about that we should help them all through, but we are not doing the work we should be doing when it comes to situations like this. And we see our kids are screaming at us to support them against things like gun violence and bullying. And when it's they, we, when they put it in front of our face, we do, we're doing them an injustice by not taking care of it. And that is happening in so many places at the same time. And that is something that 
like it, it, it reminds me why we do the work we do. It reminds me that all of the families that I work with have similar experiences to what my son is going through and that this is something that we can break if we get in there and we, we get in the weeds with them and let them tell us what they need instead of brushing it off. And there are, we've got to make sure we've got the right people involved to do that. Ellie said there's a big difference between asking someone, what's wrong with you? And asking someone, what happened to you? We can't keep our promises to future generation if our first instinct is to blame or isolate or ignore them. Trauma and brokenness are tangled up in all of our systems, our communities, our institutions, our unwillingness to change when we are privileged and comfortable. It's tangled up in our indifference, our excuses, in our hard pass on responsibility that is in fact ours. When we were studying the story of Judas, my high schoolers went straight to Parkland, Florida and the last shooting and how they feel betrayed by the NRA, by our government, by the adults. And a ninth grader said, you know, we shouldn't have to like take the lead on this, but we will. And, exactly. <laughs> and then they did. And, and you know, so the adults at Bethlehem respond, responded and we got three buses and we filled them and we got them transportation to the next march. But then following that up by, show, by exploring with young people which young people are being listened to and which ones aren't and what part of the gun violence conversation is being is getting attention and which isn't mm -hmm. and what messages that sends about who matters mm -hmm. and who's listening mm -hmm. and um, what is like the cool new fad to jump onto in terms of change mm -hmm. and what that has to do with power and race uh, and belonging, mm -hmm. right? There are a lot of conversations around supporting different causes and I feel like, specifically like with the Black Lives Matter movement, yes. my son was really interested in just understanding the, the different sides of it and what that means for him as a young black male. And hearing so many people kind of put it out there that you needed to be an expert or like, or putting out there that you need to fix your own problem. Yes. This is not a community problem. This is not a nationwide issue. You guys are hurting each other. So until you stop that, we're not we don't care what else is happening to you or you don't even know why you're out there marching or you know just that was a lot of what he was internalizing and and was feeling like I really don't matter to anybody other than you. You know, just my family cares about me, but outside of that that's not true. And then you tell your kids, no, you matter in the world. Mm -hmm. And then situations like what's happening at school happens and he's reminded or he feels, no, I don't. Mm -hmm. I, I'm telling you something's happening to me and no one's doing anything about it. Nobody's saying anything about it. It's not a big deal because it's me. Mm -hmm. And that's the narrative that we need to change. Yes. That no matter who it is, <laughs> You do matter, and we are going to support you. Yes.
Maybe you feel both weary and tenacious like these women. Maybe you weep and laugh in the same conversations. Maybe their voices sound familiar because you know what it feels like to fight for these promises, for their truth, for your value, and for future generations. In Genesis, God speaks the cosmos into being, one day at a time, and it is all called good. Then humankind is formed and God says, oh, this is very good. You are very good. How far that message feels sometimes, because all this other shit is louder. Kids are watching where we put our energy, what battles we fight, how we take responsibility and keep promises, or don't. They are coming of age in a year of the Lord's favor, God's jubilee, 50 years since the civil rights movement. It's breaking through all over again, like it does. It's messy, it's not organized the way people in power want it to be organized, and it's not comfortable for those of us just waking up. Brene Brown's work is resonating with people, an invitation to be vulnerable, there's permission to be a hot mess, and all of this stuff is rising up with echoes of the promise that God speaks in Genesis and still today. You are very good. You are loved as you are. You are worthy and enough. You are mine and I desire life abundant for you. Had you forgotten this promise? Has it felt far away lately? I asked Kirsten and Ellie what promise they would speak to their childhood self if she were listening. I would say I promise you that you are enough. And I promise that you will make a difference. I would promise little Ellie that she matters and I would remind her that the ladders and the games are what are broken, not you. That the things you're gonna try to get points for don't matter, and that's not your fault. That's the, that's the rigged system, <laughs> that's the rigged game. And those are exactly the promises that you embody in the work you do with young people and families and your own children. So thank you for being God's promises in the world for the next generation. Sometimes it feels futile, but you are beautiful while you do that messy work. Thank you. Alter Guild is hosted by Meta Herrick Carlson, Matthew Ian Fleming, Miriam Samuelson Roberts, and Derek Transgard, with edits by Matt and Derek. You can visit our website at alterguild.org, that's A-L-T-E-R, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at slash alterguild. To listen to more episodes or to subscribe, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else fine podcasts are sold. And if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review on iTunes. 
Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in next week for our next episode. In the meantime, go in peace, listen, love, serve, and alter.